listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, visit my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call 757-774-8482. You can call or text that number, 757-774-8482. Yes, indeed. This is the Fret Files, the Guitar Repair Podcast. This is about the fourth time I've tried to start the show tonight. I tell you, it's just been a cra- it's just been that kind of day, just a crazy day. Maybe you can hear my child screaming in the background, or whatever else is going on here. I had the, you know, I'm trying to, I'm trying a new microphone technique where I've, I've turned up the microphone, but I back off a little bit of it because I just feel like it's. The audio quality of the show is going to improve if I improve my mic technique. So I'm sitting here with my headphones on, right? And, you know, Halloween's coming, and it's getting cold, and it's fall, and it's just kind of a chill in the air, and things are spooky. And I was listening to I was listening to an old radio show of ghost stories today, right? So I'm sitting here in the basement with my headphones on and my mic real hot, and I keep hearing this ghostly rumble like rolling through the what is that? like what in the world am i hearing i'm investigating the whole house with a flashlight like what is you know i can't hear anything then i go back to the headphones i put my headphones on i'm ready to record and i hear it again this crazy like ghostly rumble like rolling through the house like rolling through my headphones and i realize it's just I got my mic up so hot that it's just cars driving by. Yeah. So I'm just freaking myself out. Anyway, this that's, has nothing to do with anything. This is the Fret Files podcast. It's a podcast about guitar repair, guitar science, guitar news, guitar facts, guitar opinions, guitar repair and guitar building. We do all kinds of interviews and guitar stories. And uh, this episode... It's going to be an interview episode. I've got a great interview for you with Dale Fortune, and uh, we'll have that in just a moment. I keep getting emails from people saying, Eric, bring back Melissa! And believe me, I know, the show sucks without her. Uh, But she's only going to be here for the question and answer episodes, so just uh, hold on to your hats. She'll be back next week. We're going to do a question and answer episode next week. And... um. Here's the deal. It's October 2017, and that means that we're going to do a special episode at the end of the month. I think this is the third or fourth one we've done now. Every every Halloween we do guitar horror stories. So I need your guitar horror story. Maybe the most mangled guitar you've ever seen, or the most botched repair you've ever seen, or maybe the the guitar your fat brother-in-law sat on, or maybe it's the a guitar that got uh, burned up in a fire, or maybe the worst repair you've ever had to do, maybe the worst repair you've ever had to undo, Uh, just whatever, this crazy thing you found inside an acoustic guitar, you know, your, your general guitar horror stories. I used to say guitar repair horror stories, but I just want guitar horror stories. Maybe you got a haunted guitar. I'd love to hear that. Somebody somewhere out there on this planet has a guitar they think is haunted. You know? I hope they're listening. Send in that story. Anyway, send in those stories, and we'll have the uh, guitar horror story episode at the end of the month. That's going to be fun. So, uh, yeah. Here comes my interview with Dale Fortune. Dale has been building and repairing guitars, oh, for well over 40 years, since the 70s. He's a former employee of Rickenbacker, and uh, he's got a lot of great stories and a lot of great information, and uh, 
just generally a good guy. And uh, great interview. So here we go. Hello, Dale. How are you? I'm okay. Hey, I, I really appreciate you joining me for the podcast. I, uh, I, I've i been wanting to interview you for, for a while, ever since I bought some uh, truss rods from you, I think last year. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if you ever need any more, let me know. Oh, I'm sure I will. Those uh, those truss rods are fussy. <laughs> yeah, and, uh, I'm probably one of the only guys that makes them. T- to my knowledge, yeah. you are. I couldn't find anybody else that makes them. Yeah, you can't get that original material anymore. <clears throat> when Rickenbacker was having it made uh, special back in the 50s, it was basically uh, a round rod that they run through a... a a roller and they would press it so it's flat on two sides hmm. i had some uh i had a place try to make me some like that but they come out wiggly squiggly so i just went back to well i've always made them where i take a 3 uh rod <clears throat> and yeah. grind the top 30 thousandths off the top and 30 thousandths off the other side yeah. and you end up with a rod that's uh 0.130 and then you thread the uh, the threads on there, and you're good to go, huh? Yep, thread one end with 1032, and then grind the the other after you fold the thing over like a hairpin. A lot of people call them hairpin. Yeah. So then you just grind a, about a 20 degree angle on the other end, so it bites into the the aluminum backing plate. You when you, I replace rods in in Rickenbackers. I I uh, make a brass backing plate instead of the aluminum one. They yeah. work better. Yeah, you sent me one of those too, and I agree, it it did work better. It seemed like it. Oh. It had a little better. I couldn't. Give I to couldn't it. remember. Yeah. Yeah, and they're stronger. The the nuts don't dig into the brass like they do the aluminum. Right. Yeah. So you um so, you, <clears throat> you you worked uh for Rickenbacker uh in the seventies. Is that right? I did. For, 1972 through 1976. Wow. So maybe maybe you can clear something up for me that I've always wondered because I've I hear people say it Rickenbacker and I hear people say Rickenbacker and I've always well, said Rickenbacker. Originally, but... originally it was uh, Rickenbacker, B A C H E R. That's because Adolf Rickenbacker, right, <coughs> who came from Europe. He came to America and started his company, and then uh, he and George Beecham and uh, Paul Barth, you know, they expanded. They got into making slide guitars, Mm -hmm. and then when uh, Nazi Germany, uh, the war broke out and everything, the Rickenbacker name was German. Well, that was very unpopular. Sure. Eddie Rickenbacker was very popular. He was yeah. World War One ace. Right. Okay, so they so, changed it because so Adolf, of him? Yeah, he just dropped dropped the H, turned it into a, a K, and became Rickenbacker. Wow. Yeah, that's basically, you know, it's just simple history. So, so how do you pronounce it? Oh... Either way, Rickenbacker, yeah, Rickenbacker. Yeah, I kind of go back and forth. I noticed that on their website, they actually have one little corner of the website that says how to pronounce it, and the company says the proper pronunciation is Rickenbacker. But yeah, no, that is. nobody really says it that way. But it didn't originally. Originally, it wasn't that way. Right, and because the, it's a German when, name. Uh, Adolf Rickenbacker started the company in the late uh, 20s, they were they were making uh, aircraft parts. They were making aluminum things, you know. Hmm. And they got into making uh, musical instruments just on a whim because of George Beecham. Hmm. And uh, you know that progressed into the slide guitars and and <clears throat> and uh, the way his name became pronounced because of the unpopularity of, of Hitler and Nazi yeah. Germany. It was changed to Rickenbacker. Yeah, yeah. And then you know that's the way John Hall likes it pronounced, but you, and it, it's, because of the change in the spelling, and that's the way it should be pronounced, Rickenbacker. It's it's hard to convince people though. Once it's pronounced a certain way, it's hard to change the way people pronounce a word that they're used to saying. So I I don't know. I've, yeah. I, I I hear it both ways all the time, and sometimes people get adamant about it. No, it's pronounced this way, or no, it's pronounced that way. <clears throat> yeah. Well. 
does it really make a big difference? Does it? <laughs> you know, there's no there's no swastikas on the guitars. So, <laughs> and you know, Adolf freaking Bacher. Yeah. He he wasn't a Nazi. He was just a well, German that not. came to America. Yeah, sure. You know, after World War One, he came to right. America. You know, out of uh, like millions of other immigrants did. Sure. Yeah. Well, they changed. <clears throat> you know, during the war, they changed a lot of things. I mean, they 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 didn't call sauerkraut sauerkraut. They called it something else. I can't remember what. But yeah, that was a common thing back then. Yeah. Uh, mm. Tell me, well, how, before you worked at Rickenbacker. What what were you, was that your first foray into the guitar world, or were were you building and repairing guitars before that? Um, well, I was uh, in my very first band in 1962 when I was uh, 14 years wow. old. But actually, I was playing guitar or trying to play guitar before that because my both my parents played. We're, my we're, dad had my dad had a 1953 Telecaster and an old Harmony Monterey Archtop guitar, wow. and they were around the house. And I would pick them up uh, when I was nine years old back in the 50s. I couldn't get my hands around the neck, and then as I get a little older, yeah, I'm starting to push down on the E string, and it hurt. Yeah. But then by the early 60s, I grew up in Southern California on the beach. Oh, you uh, were playing surf music then, weren't you? I was playing surf music. <laughs> I, knew, I knew it. But uh, my dad my dad gave me his 1953 Telecaster and his little wow. tweed amp, and uh, my uh, best friend, we both surfed, we started a surf band, Called Soul Mars, and uh, the, basically the name Soul Mars. Uh, that's it, not that it was a surf term, but uh, it's two Spanish words: Soul meaning sun, and Mars meaning the ocean or the sea. Sure. So it was kind of relative. Plus, there was a surf spot that we used to go to up by Santa Barbara called Solomar Beach. Cool. And we just kind of shortened that into Soul Mars. Yeah. And uh, so as I was playing guitar, you know, I played my dad's telly, and I've still got it. It's out in the studio. Oh, good. Um, by the time the Beatles came around in 64, we went right from surf music uh, to Beatles. Oh, I bet. And then, and then when, uh, when uh, uh, Lennon and Harrison had the Epiphone casinos, well... Uh, I wanted one. <laughs> yeah. But uh, there were no Epiphone casinos at the music stores in Southern Cal. But what I did, I bought a, a Gibson ES-330, which is the same guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, The one I bought was in 1966, and I bought it in 1967. And it had been hanging on a wall unused for over a year before I bought it. So one of the the controls were scratchy. Yeah. So when I bought the guitar, and this is how I got into doing guitar work, when I bought the guitar, I took it to a, a, a guy that I knew, uh, Doc Kaufman. <clears throat> I'd you, already done some work you, with you Doc. You knew Doc Kaufman? Doc Kaufman. I mean, we're talking about... K-A-U-F-F-M-A-N, Leo Fender's sure. original partner. Oh, I know exactly who that is. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I first met Doc in 1963, and... Uh, wow. I'll, I'll get into that in just a minute, but... <clears throat> the way I got into doing guitar work when I took my 330 to Doc to have him, you know, find out what's wrong with this uh, control, the volume. It, you know, you turn it up and down, and it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. So he was going to cut a hole in the back of the guitar to <laughs> to make it easy to, you know, fix the electronics. No. <clears throat> Well, I wouldn't let him do it. No, that, that was kind of standard back then, you know. Well, yeah, these sure. Were, these weren't vintage guitars. They no. were just guitars. Right, right. They were 50 bucks. Right. So uh, I took the guitar home and uh, figured out how to fix it myself, you know, by taking the the bridge pickup off, <clears throat> tying strings on the posts of the, the controls and pulling them out through the thing, and then just spraying contact cleaner in them and cleaning. That's all it was. Sure. But but before I ever did that, in 1963, when we first heard the Beatles, when I went, uh, you know, after summer vacation, we were still playing surf music. Well, when I went back to school in September of 63, had a good friend who uh, had just come back from England, and he came back with a bunch of Beatle records. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, man. yeah. We never heard of them before. By 64, when uh, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, and McCartney's playing a Hofner bass. And uh, I went out and bought a, I still had the Telecaster, but I went out and bought a, a Hofner guitar. 
oh. <clears throat> six-string Hofner that looked similar to to uh, a Gretsch, but it wasn't. It was a Hofner, but it was cheap. It was a nice guitar, but it was cheap. Yeah. But our bass player, <clears throat> he was playing a guitar with four strings on it. didn't have a bass. So what I did for our bass player, because I had some knowledge of woodworking from uh, you know taking the wood shop, and I knew Doc Kaufman. I, I bought some pine and glued it together to make a, a two-inch thick body, cut it out in the shape of a violin, used shoe polish to stain it to look like a sunburst finish, <laughs> yeah. and then painted white stripes around the edge to oh, make great. it look like binding. Yeah, yeah sure. <clears throat> and I went over to Doc's uh, uh, shop. He had a shop behind his house. His garage was a shop. And Doc had some kind of used guitar neck that we fitted onto that body and and put one pickup and and uh, one volume and a tone control on it so <clears throat> our uh, little beetle band we had our bass player now had uh look like hoffner bass wow it was pretty cool <laughs> yeah it probably looked and pretty that's how, that's how i got into doing that kind of stuff because yeah. after that uh, i did i did things like uh i took a melody maker and put a humbucking pickup in it for a friend of mine i painted another guitar with spray cans of lacquer black and I would put uh, Grover tuners on guitars. And I was just doing all this when I was living with my parents. I was just doing this in the garage. That my dad had a little workbench set up. Sure. And one thing led to another. And, you know, it just uh, I was fascinated with uh, the construction of guitars. At the time, also, I was working for my parents. When I graduated from high school in 65, I went right to work for my mm -hmm. parents. Hmm. And by the early 70s, uh, 1972, summer of 72, my parents had sold their business. And so I was like, okay, where am I going to go to work? I already had a bunch of friends working at Rickenbacker in Santa Ana. And so and not that it was easy to get a job, but I just went over there and, and uh, boom, they put me right out in the wood shop. Nice. One, one thing led to another, you know, and um, the very first thing that I did uh, working at Rickenbacker in the woodshop was they had me putting the binding on the necks and the bodies. Oh, wow. That was an everyday, first thing you do in the morning, or first thing I would do, I, <clears throat> we'd build about 25 bases a day, and then maybe once a week we'd build some guitars. Uh, but the majority of the instruments that we were making were bass guitars, 25 a day. Wow. And what? I was doing the binding, and then from there uh, they had me do the top nets, and then I would do all kinds of other things. Over over a period of time, I learned every procedure there was at building Rickenbacker guitars. Oh, I bet. You know, and it just took time. Uh, you know, I uh, the way we put frets in, we used a, a hammer, just a claw hammer, sure. pound them in, yeah. cut the edges off, drill side dots, drill top dots. Yeah. Everything was done by hand. You know, well, the jack and at holes, that time, uh, at that time, they were building guitars the same way that they'd built them since the fifties, really, weren't they? Oh, ex yeah, exactly. Uh, they really didn't change procedure until nineteen eighty-three. Yeah. They uh, <clears throat> they changed truss rods. Uh, they started changing the way they were being routed, and then in the nineties, uh, everything went to CNC. Sure. Just make them make them quicker. Make them everything uh, more the same. Yeah. <clears throat> Plus that John Hall, I mean, he got his son involved in it and his daughter. Mm -hmm. John Hall's daughter, Sarah, she's a computer whiz, and she did all of the programming and uh, the whatever you call this stuff where you scan, you know, everything and put it into a computer, and then the CNC yeah. machine cuts out uh, the pieces of wood exactly what you program a computer to tell it to yeah, do. Yeah, like that, that was, auto AutoCAD, what she would do. AutoCAD programming or whatever it was. Yeah. So I never got into that. I didn't work there. I yeah, mean, when I right. left in 76, uh, well, before I left, I had turned, my wife and I, we got married in 1972, and we owned a house mm -hmm. in Santa Ana that we bought in 72. And uh, I had turned the garage into a, a small uh, guitar repair shop in 1975 hmm. because... Uh, a lot of people found out I was working at Rickenbacker, and, and they were asking me to do things. Sure. So, sure. So I started a little guitar shop in my garage, and then I was just happened to be in a sight singer music uh, one day after work, getting some strings, and somebody in there recognized me. Said, "Hey, you work at Rickenbacker," 
And so a salesman goes, really? You work over the Rickenbacker factory? I go, yeah. He goes, come with me. <laughs> and we go in the back room to their workbench. He hands me a set of humbucking pickups and a set of Grovers. And he goes, here, put these on this Les Paul. I got the guitar sold. It was a used guitar. He goes, I got it sold, but the guy wants these parts on it. So I said, oh, okay. So yeah. one thing led to another, and I was uh, you know, going to work over at Sight Singer Music. Uh, every day after work at Rickenbacker. And wow. when I'd go home and, and do some guitar work, and then 8 o'clock in the evening I was I was in a band or doing some uh, other things. I was playing, sometimes I did a solo act at a restaurant in Costa Mesa. I was playing four nights a week. I was in a country band that was playing uh, four and five nights a week. So I was just really busy, uh, you know, with, between... Uh, playing and uh, repairing. Yeah, sounds like it. And, and and then in 76, I mean, I got so busy with repairs and stuff, and, and I was having guys asking me to build them instruments. Mm-hmm. I ran out of room in the garage, so I leased a 1,000-square-foot industrial building over in Tustin. Wow. And within one year, I had three guys working for me. Oh, wow. And Making and, custom uh, guitars. And... Uh, one of the guys that worked for me was Alan Hamill, who I taught him how to build guitars. Yeah. Now, Alan went on to work at the Fender Custom Shop, and he became one of their, what they call, master builders. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then in 1979, after I'd had my shop for three years, I hired a guy uh, who worked in Sightseer Music as a salesman. Didn't know anything about building guitars, but but he had the desire... And he pretty much was begging me to give him a job because he hated selling guitars and that stuff. <laughs> so th- this was Mark Kendricks, and I gave Mark a job, and oh. I taught him how to build uh, electric guitars. Oh, cool. And uh, he went on to to go to work for the Fender Custom Shop uh, and became what they call a, a master builder. Yeah, yeah. And... Uh, you know, the custom shop's still around, but both Mark and Alan, who worked for me, uh, Mark, he has a small business on the side after he retired from from uh, Fender. He started building uh, uh, effects boxes and uh, winding custom pickups. Mm-hmm. So I assume he's doing pretty good. I see him on Facebook, and I talk to him now and then and he seems to be doing pretty good with with uh his business on the side yeah because he has he has a big following in japan oh really when he worked at the fender custom shop he got very well known in japan yeah some of those some guys of the, some of those guys some are really well known build. yeah for, for yeah right the custom shop guys really get a following absolutely yeah, and I know a lot of those guys from the custom shop uh, yeah Kay sure Black, yeah john page yeah. matter of fact in Gosh, it was the late, maybe 97 or 98, uh, I was down in Southern Cal on a surf trip. And I went by the custom shop to see Mark and and Alan Hamill. And John Page asked me if I would be interested in going to work for them. And I said, hmm, I could be tempted, but, uh, you know, I own a house in Oregon. I have a guitar shop. And yeah. uh, I said, you know, you'd have to pay me pretty good. And he goes, well, what would you expect for a starting salary? And this was either ninety seven or ninety eight, and I told him forty five thousand just to start yeah. off. Well, that was more than they wanted could pay or whatever because the other guys weren't making that much. Hmm. So it didn't break my heart or anything. I just yeah. told him. I said, "Well, I got I you know I got to start at forty five thousand because I'm going to have to buy a house and relocate and everything." Sure. Well, <clears> and, it's, so, and it's expensive so, to live down there. Yeah, well, at that time, you know, I looked around, and I found a really nice older house in Corona, uh, just maybe three miles from the from the Fender Custom Shop, and it was just a little over 200000 It was affordable, you know, and I really liked it. It was uh, an older house built in the 30s. Oh, yeah. Uh, but uh, I didn't get the job, so I definitely yeah. wasn't going to buy a house without making sure I had a job. Sure. Because what I was doing in in Oregon, when we moved here in 83, we closed our guitar shop down. <clears throat> and between uh, Tom Reeser and Mark Hendricks, they took over my building. Hmm. And uh, they just kind of picked up right where I left off. They retained all the music. I was doing uh, repair work and warranty work for all the music stores, almost all of them in Orange County. So Mark and... Uh, you ever heard of Tom Reeser? 
Uh, I don't think so. Well, if you Google or go on Facebook, TR Guitars. Oh, he, oh I yeah, I've seen guitars. TR Guitars on Facebook. He used to come around Facebook. my guitar yeah. shop when he was 15 years old. Cool. And he would just kind of stand outside, you know, looking. Cool. Because it was an industrial building. I had a roll-up garage door. Uh-huh. He would come over on his little motorcycle, and he'd kind of hang around outside. And finally, he got the nerve to ask if he could come in and watch. Yeah. So I said, yeah. And then after a week or so, he said, you think you could teach me how to uh, do some of this stuff? And I said, Sure, here's a broom. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you start. So I, <laughs> I said, you clean up the shop, and, and as you come here every day after school, you know, I'll teach you things. First, got to learn how to do repairs, and then over a period of time, I'll teach you how to build guitars. Yeah. And, uh, you know, after, let's see, that was 76, 7. Uh, after about two or three years, uh, Tom was, uh, became a pretty good luthier guitar builder. Yeah. And then when I closed the my end of the shop down and moved to Oregon and he took over my lease and the building and everything. <clears throat> they wouldn't phone company wouldn't let him have my phone number, mm-hmm. but he, he really didn't need it anyway. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he just carried on and, uh, he's still in business. Uh, wow. he's not in the building anymore where I was at, but, uh, he's still doing a lot of guitar repairs and occasionally mm-hmm. he builds a guitar, not too often because he's, he's busy with <clears throat> a lot of other things. So, so you're you're in Oregon now. What what part of Oregon are you in? Uh, we live about 15 miles west of Portland, and are right you off do, of uh, the Sunset Highway. Do you have a uh, which is uh, a Highway storefront? 26? Do you have a storefront? Or are you working out of your home shop? Uh, when we bought this house in '83, this was all farmland out here. We built a, a thousand square foot uh, shop on the back of the property. No oh, one, yeah. Uh-huh. And, yeah, and uh, we have a half acre, pretty good sized little piece of land. Uh, we have a private road, three hundred foot long. Um, I used to kind of advertise a little. <clears throat> I was doing a lot of work for local music stores and musicians and stuff, but I never had a website. Never, never really was interested in advertising. I didn't have to. Yeah, and uh, you know, over a period of years, my business. I mean, it just. It took off. I got more work than I knew what to do with. And uh, <clears throat> my wife just retired recently, well, a little over a year ago. And uh, I'm teaching her things. She, she's learning how to sand guitars and do oh, cool. do some of the grunt work, make yeah. pick guards. My son worked uh, for me, with me for a while. I was teaching him how to do guitars. But he just didn't have the desire. His heart wasn't in it. Uh, he was a pro skateboarder for Oh, Ever wow. since he was like twelve years old up until he was thirty. Wow! And that was that was his uh, labor of love, skateboarding. Cool. So, <laughs> well, I he got... was a great guitar player, but he just didn't get it. Just couldn't get into building guitars. Yeah, I got turned on to you because you're one of the few guys who specializes in vintage ricks and the pr- weird quirks and problems that they have. And uh, I needed truss rods, and you were the only guy I could find that makes replica um you know reproduction truss rods what yeah, they... i make them exactly exactly like the way they were made at the factory you know just the long skinny metal rod yeah. and you bend it over and you grind one end off right thread the other end and then put tape down the middle of them they're such a crazy design what were they thinking when they designed that i mean they 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 eventually changed it but it's it's a quirky truss rod well the the way it came about was Gibson had a patent on the truss rod that was put in the neck on sure. an arc. Yeah. <clears throat> now, all these companies had their own design of truss rods. Gretsch had a really weird one. Gretsch's, Gretsch's truss rod was a, a three-eighths inch steel rod on a lot of their guitars, and it was just a straight rod went mm-hmm. all the way down to the heel of the neck where it had a, a thrust plate. And then up at the other end, it it was threaded, but it was reverse threads. Yeah, wow. You had to turn the nut backwards <laughs> to make to make it tight. But it it all it did it just stiffened the neck. It didn't bend it or anything. Sure. It was just a real heavy duty three eighths inch steel rod that uh, when you tighten it down, it made the neck stiffer. Hmm. Now Gibson, their truss rod was actually put in the neck in an arc. Yeah. <clears throat> it it was. Uh, uh, five-eighths of an inch deep in the center, mm-hmm. and it was a quarter inch at each end. So, 
and it was on an arc, and I don't know if it was a 20-degree radius or what. Yeah. But then when they put a nut on the end, the, the end down at the heel was anchored. That yeah, was, right. <clears throat> did not, it did not move. And then the other end had the little uh, metal thrust plate that you tighten the, the 5 sixteenths nut up against. And by tightening that nut, it tried to make the rod straighten out, which created a bend in the neck. It would bend down. Right. Now, Gibson held a patent on that. They'd had that patent for, oh, God, who since knows? The, since the 30s or 20s, yeah. But probably since the the nineteen uh, early 1900s, they had that patent. Oh, wow. So uh, when other companies come along, they either had to pay Gibson royalties to use their trust rod design, mm-hmm. or they had to come up with their own design. Yeah. So, and so Rick opted uh, for most, the latter. <laughs> yeah. Well, most all the companies came up with their own design. Yeah. And... Paul Barth, uh, one of the original guys at Rickenbacker, he came up with that design. Their original electric guitar that they uh, designed in 1953 uh, before Roger Rosmiesel came to work for Rickenbacker. Paul Barth uh, designed that truss rod, but it was only a single rod, but worked fine. Mm -hmm. Now, when, uh, what's his name, Uh, Roger Rosmiesel come along, they changed things uh, on the 325, like Lennon's guitar uh-huh. and the uh, Capri's. All in the late 50s, they only put a single rod in those. Yeah, but on the bass guitars, they were already doing a dual truss rod. Same kind of rod, but just, just two rods. Two of them instead of, instead of one. Sure, yeah. But then in 1960, uh, they went to two rods in the guitar neck, <clears throat> and the re- uh, now, nobody ever told me this, but I have to assume the only reason they did that is because uh, the jigs that were set up to cut truss rods, yeah. they would cut two slots right down the piece of maple. Oh, yeah. Just boom. They were, uh, the cutters we used, they were called fly cutters. And, and uh, they would just they would attach on a spindle on a table shaper, and you run the, the maple uh, neck stock blank down that, and it would just... Boom, cut two slots. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, the only difference on a bass and, and a guitar was the, the bass rod, the slots are 24 inches, and the guitar slots are 18 inches. Mm-hmm. But it's the same identical slot. Well, I now, assumed the, the guitar, on the guitar... The guitar rods are shorter. Yeah, I assumed that <clears> on the guitar that <throat> they, went to, they went to a double rod because the single rod just wasn't working very well. Uh, well, that's debatable. I've worked on a lot of 50s Rickenbackers with single rods, all the old Capris. Uh, never had a problem with them. Yeah. But the 12-string... Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, more tension. Sure. Now, they they didn't, inv- you know, really actually invent the 12-string until 1963. That's when they st- started experimenting with that. And they were already... <clears throat> Gibson already had a 12-string... Uh, Harmony had 12-string. There were already 12-strings <clears throat> guitars around. Even Fender already had an electric 12-string. Oh, yeah. But uh, the the tension, you know, from the 12-strings on the real skinny Rickenbacker necks, because you know, you've played Rickenbackers, you oh, know, their yeah. necks are just thin. Yep. So two truss rods work fine, but you got to know how to adjust that neck. Yeah. You don't just tighten the rod. That's right. Gotta, that's that's what I wanted to get to. Yeah. And pull the neck, pull down on the neck, yep. put an overbend in it, then tighten the rods up. Because they're not a true truss rod in the sense like a Fender. Right. Fender truss rod is exactly like a Gibson truss rod. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Fender didn't have to pay Gibson any royalties oh, or anything. Really? Because when when Leo invented started building his guitars, yeah, he put his adjustment nut down at the heel. Oh, and that's <laughs> and that voided that the really one thing different. I'll be darned. So yep. with with the Ricks, when you on the vintage Rick truss rod, um, the other way to do it that I've always done it, and you can tell me uh, what you think about this method is, um, I like to clamp the neck to where I want it to be, and then adjust the that truss worked. rod. And then, uh, uh, so that so that there's tension on the rod. You know uh, what a lot of techs don't know when if they're used to Gibsons and Fenders, and then they work on a vintage Rick for the first time, they go to crank on that truss rod. You can you can pop the fingerboard right off. Oh yeah, 
Yep, definitely. And I, I see that all the time. Um, what what, uh, what I have always done, I take a, a piece of cardboard or cardstock paper, put it on the back of the neck and on the top of the fingerboard, and then put a piece of pine on the back and on the top. Uh-huh. Put a C-clap on it, hold yeah. the neck together. Sure. Because a lot of times you'll find older rigs, somebody has tightened the nuts down so far that you can't get the quarter-inch socket on the nut. Right. you got to... You got to pry the nut up. Yeah, they bend so down. They bend you down clamp towards the, the fingerboard and the neck together with a C clamp right there behind the top nut, uh-huh. and then you can take a real thin flat blade screwdriver and force it under the nut and just bend the end of the truss rod up where you can get the get the nut driver on it. Yeah. Then back the thing off. Pull the rods out. I always pull the rods out. Put an arc in them. Put an overbow in the rods. Mm-hmm. Wax them up really good. Then shove them back in the slot. Yeah. <clears throat> but before I do, I bend the threaded part up a little mm. so that uh, eh, it, it's got maybe an, an eighth of an inch clearance yeah. between between the truss rod adjustment cavity and and the nut. And that's another that's another tidbit that a lot of a lot of techs don't uh, a lot of repair guys don't know is those truss rods, you loosen up the nut, and they will slide right out of the headstock. They will, yeah. They are not and anchored what, at all. What I do, sometimes they're, they're kind of wedged in there. They'll be in really tight. Yeah. Uh, take, the, take the pick guard off or the neck pickup off, and, and I've got a, uh, a, a square rod that I shove in the hole mm-hmm. and just tap on it with a hammer, Yeah. and it shoves the rod right out far enough that where you can get a hold of it with a pair of pliers yeah. and pull it out the rest of the way. <clears throat> on a side note, you know, I was just thinking about uh, the the only truss rod that I've ever seen, the only style of truss rod that I've ever seen that's similar is the old Harmony truss rod. It's kind of yep. a similar thing, folded back on itself. Yep, almost or, identical, yeah. except they use a round rod that goes over one of the rods that pushes up against yeah. uh, that little uh, rectangular plate. Yeah. Oh, and I, I don't think it's folded on itself. I think it's just welded together at one end. It is. That's yeah. right. They don't. They don't bend them over. They just. Uh, they braise it. Uh, if you look at it real close, it's almost like silver soldered. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I just. I just did a. As a matter of fact, I just did a Harmony Sovereign just a short while ago. Oh, those are great guitars. That, I love uh, the those. Trust. Yeah, I've got one hanging right here on the wall of my own that I reset the neck on and everything. Yeah. But uh, the guy brought it to me, and I had to reset the neck. But there was still a bow in the neck. Yeah. And. Uh, <clears throat> What I did for him, I pulled the fingerboard off, and I put a, a modern truss rod in it, the dual action. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yep. That, that's they, a good way to do it. great. Oh, they sure do. Do you ever do that on vintage rigs? Uh, not really. It's kind uh, of a sin I to mean, do that, I, isn't I'm it? I'm doing one right now for a guy because that's what he wants. Yeah. Uh, but it's understandable. No, I, I never really had to do that uh, yeah. because I, I can make the, the old-style the old truss rods, the hairpin rods, work just fine it's all a matter of like on a base you could take the body clamp it down to a table pull down on the neck tighten both rods you know mm-hmm. to where they're fairly tight and this is with the strings loosened yeah sure. and you get an overbow in the neck and then when you tune the tune the instrument up to pitch if the neck is still got overbow in it just back each rod off just a little bit at a time until yeah. the neck stays straight yeah that's all, that's all you got to do. But a lot of guys, uh, and you probably know this yourself, a lot of guys think, oh, you can just tighten those nuts and it'll bend the neck down. Yeah. Well, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. It and on, pops on the, the fingerboard off. Rigs, yeah. uh, oh, what's his name? Grover Jackson. He designed the, uh, the, the truss rods that they've been using since the late 90s. Mm-hmm. And uh, to be honest with you, they're terrible. Oh, really? I don't know uh, anything about them. I just assume they're like a Gibson rod. Are they not like a Gibson rod? Well, they they are. They they. But the problem is, uh, there's two rods, mm-hmm. and they sit over you know close to the edge of the neck, and there's not a lot of curvature in them. Oh, okay. So what happens is you try to tighten the rod down, and it does doesn't really bend the neck enough. And when they first started uh, doing that uh, method where they changed the rods uh, in the, and started using the two rods that are on a curve with the, 
the acorn nuts at one end that go into the wood with a, a locking washer. They were wrapping them with masking tape and then putting them in a slot, and they they fit in the slot so tight that they didn't do anything. Oh. Hey, listen, let's take a, a quick break. We'll be right back with more with our guest, Dale Fortune. Hey everyone, it's Melissa. As many of you may know, I make tooled leather guitar straps. Each strap is cut, carved, stamped, dyed, and finished by hand. My straps are made to last a lifetime. Visit melcoleather.com to check out my designs or contact me with your custom order. Contact me through my Etsy site or melcoleather at gmail.com. Podcast listeners will receive 15% off their order on Etsy when they use code FRETFILES at checkout. melcoleather.com. M-E-L. CO-Leather.com. Hey guys, it's Eric. If you've been listening to the show for a long time, you know that I've been repairing guitars for a long time. Building guitars, too. Uh, if you've got a guitar that you need help with, I really, I would love to help you. I take repairs from all over the country. Sometimes a guitar is really special and you, and you really are careful about who you take it to. If you don't have a person that you can really rely on in your area, I would love to help you out. It's really easy to ship a guitar these days. I do it all the time. It's nothing to worry about. You can insure it. Uh, you just ship it to me. Maybe you've got a repair that needs to be done. Maybe you've got a, a pickup that needs to be rewound. Get in touch with me and uh, we can talk about it. You can send me some pictures of it. We can see what I can do for you. Maybe I can give you a quote on how much it would be to repair your guitar if you send me some pictures. So let me know. I would love to help you. This is what I do. This is what I specialize in. I repair guitars. I kind of specialize in, in vintage Fender restorations, but I do all kinds of work. Finishes and pickups and electronics and neck resets broken headstocks you name it i would love to help you so get a hold of me you can do so through my website ericdaw.com that's e-r-i-c-d-a-w.com and i look forward to helping you thank you i had a guy named paul muscoval and he, he owns a music store back in rhode island called pm blues and he was a rick dealer he bought 40 uh, 660 12 strings from Rickenbacker. He got a great deal on buying 40 of them. And out of the 40, 36 of them, the truss rods would not work. The necks wow. were bowed so bad, he couldn't sell them. So he contacted John Hall and said, Hey, John, I've got 36 out of 40 guitars above for me, and these truss rods don't work. Hall wouldn't do a thing for him. He said, Well, what'd you do? Leave them in a hot warehouse or something? Oh, man. <laughs> So Paul started sending me, he sent me one of them right off the bat, because mm -hmm. he had heard from somebody, you know, that I'm like the Rickenbacker guy. This is the guy you go to when you want your neck fixed or whatever. So he sent me one, and I mean, and it was really sad. So I pulled the rods out, cleaned them all up, <clears throat> and then I heated the neck up, because the necks, some of them were twisted. This first one in particular that he sent me, because the rods are in so tight, you got to know how torque works. When you tighten a nut down, yeah. and let's say that rod is 18 inches long, but all the pressure is just on the first uh, four to five inches, it was causing a torque that was twisting the neck. Mm -hmm. the, the rod wasn't torquing the full length of the neck. Right. So it put a twist, it put a twist in the peg head. Oh, yeah. From, you know, tightening the nut, you know, and... When you tighten, well, you got back pressure. It's called torque. Yeah, sure. So he he sent me this guitar, and I mean, it was not only was the neck uh, had this very bad bow in it, but it had a twist from the fifth fret up to the top nut. The peghead was just burp. <laughs> so I heated the neck all up, massaged it, and everything. I got it all straight and everything, and then I put a little over bow in it so that when you put the twelve strings back on, it would pull the neck back up flat. And I cleaned the, all the tape off the rods, waxed them all up, put them back in, tightened them up, adjusted it and everything, and sent it back to him. When he got it, he calls me up, and he goes, Jesus, what did you do to this? And I thought he was mad. I thought, <laughs> God damn, he's been shipping or something. 
I thought he, you know, something had happened, but he was just like ecstatic. He couldn't believe that I took a guitar that was just unplayable right. and made it one of the best played 12 strings he'd ever seen. Yeah. So from, so from then on, he started sending me two at a time. And I was just charging him 100 to $150, depending on how much uh, effort and work and time I had to put in him, to fix these things. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, <clears throat> after a while, you know, he'd sold them all. He'd sent like 10 of them over to England. And uh, But anyway, so he, he uh, called up John Hall and complained to Hall about uh, how bad these things were and, and he should get some kind of discount because he had to have every one of them fixed. And you know who John Hall is? I do, and he doesn't like that, does he? <laughs> oh, no. He, uh, he yanked the guy's uh, dealership. Oh, jeez. Yeah, he just said, you're no longer a Rickenbacker dealer. Isn't that awful? I know. I used to belong to the Rickenbacker Forum. I was uh, one of the moderators. I could, I could post pictures and answer questions for people and, and do all that stuff. Did you get kicked and off for happened? knowing too much? I'm sorry, what? Did, did you get kicked off for knowing too much? Uh, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that was my guess. <laughs> what happened was, <clears throat> uh, Paul Wilsinski, or how do you pronounce his name, somebody sent him a, a, an early 60s 360F that uh, the back was cracked on it really bad, and he put a new back on it. And there were other issues, and uh, the thing had been painted black. Mm-hmm. And it was it was one of the probably sixty one or sixty two when they went to solid the the very first ones they made they used plywood on them and then they started using uh, quarter inch solid maple for the backs. Well, the one that Paul had, he replaced the back and he did it a weird way. He posted pictures of what he was doing. Uh, he used a milling machine just to mill back uh, instead of using hot knives or whatever to heat it up and just, you know, undo the glue scene. He milled the back of the guitar off all around the, wow. the perimeter. Uh-huh. And which, you know, he, it can be done that way. But so then when he fixed it, he he put a plywood back on it. And so I posted a question on the Rickenbacker forum to Paul. I said, I just asked him, I said, Paul, why'd you, why'd you use a, a birch plywood back instead of solid maple like it had on it? Well, Paul didn't answer. John Hall chimes in and says, they all had plywood. <laughs> and I answered back, and I says, well, not all of them, John. I said, I owned uh, two of them in the 70s, and uh, one of them was plywood, and one was solid maple back. Huh. <clears throat> and so Hall replies back to me. He goes, we didn't even make these things in the 70s. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I answered his question, and I said, yeah, I know we didn't. I said, I only owned them in the 70s. Well, that pissed him off because, <laughs> you know, now I'm making him look like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And next thing I know, I'm just like, I'm gone. Bam. He's got my IP address on my computer, and I can't even yeah. I can't even rejoin under a fake name or anything. Well, they're a so, particularly, they're a particularly uh, shall we say, litigious company. And they fiercely protect their brand around the internet. I mean, you you go try to to find a, a truss rod cover, nameplate, you know, or a, a, any kind of reproduction parts. They're not available. Oh, I know. They and, keep you know, a tight lid on there's, that. There's a lot of a lot of quirky guys on those forums, you know, that uh, they debate over: is that a faker? Is it a Rick and faker, or right. is or is it real? You know, it's yeah. like who cares? Yeah, <laughs> you know. I mean, I make truss rod covers. I don't sell them to the public. I think I sent you a couple, didn't I? Yeah. I mean, for restoration work, you need them sometimes. That's that's all but, I do. But try I getting one. Them. Try getting one from Rick. And John Hall knows I do that. I make gold ones. I make white ones. Yeah. I restore guitars that are missing or broken truss rod covers. Yeah. And that's what I do. I put it on there. You know, if you had a nineteen. Uh, the 31 uh, Packard or old vintage car is missing the hood ornament. What are you going to do? Yeah, if you I'm, can't yeah, find a hood right. ornament, you yeah. can have one made. That's right. Absolutely. You know? And I, I even went on forums, not on the Rickenbacker forum, but on other forums. People were like going, wow, man, it's, these truss rod covers, it's like a 10-cent piece of plastic, but people want $200 for them. <laughs> right. So I was posting 
uh, information on how to make your own truss rod cover by going to a, a sign shop or a print shop and having a vinyl transfer made and putting that on the back of a piece of clear plastic sure. that's the shape of your truss rod and then spraying over it with white or gold paint and you got yourself a Rickenbacker truss rod cover. Sure. Well, that pissed John Hall off really bad. Boy, yeah, he didn't bet. like me at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, they've. I think that they, they're they've been paranoid for years that uh, they would lose kind of their, um, you know, like Fender and Gibson. They 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 were way too late to defend their guitars and to def- defend their designs, uh, and they've lost. You know, I mean, how many how many Gibson and Fender copies are there? There, there's no recourse on oh, that. Yeah. Yep. But you can't and make you know, a Rick. And you know, same happening with Rickenbacker. Uh, the horseshoe pickup, which was invented back in 1931. Yeah. You know, and it was used all the way up until the late 50s mm-hmm. on guitars and and the bass. And then in 1969, no more horseshoe pickups right. because the magnets kept going dead. So from 69 on, John Hall didn't do anything to protect the patent on uh, on a horseshoe pickup. Yeah. And there were guys like Rick Turner of Turner Guitars. Well, mm-hmm. he made he made a single pickup guitar that had a horseshoe pickup on it. And mm-hmm. it was a real horseshoe pickup. It was a magnetized piece of metal. <clears throat> and he had it at the NAMM show and this was like in 2008 or 2009. And uh his his guitar, single pickup, solid body electric. It was called the Heritage Heritage 1 something like that. Well, John Hall sees the guitar in his booth and looks at it and didn't say it didn't say a thing to Rick Turner. Two months later, Turner gets uh, this a uh, letter in the mail: a cease and desist, or you're going to be sued. Yeah. <laughs> I talked to Rick about it. He goes, "Boy, he's such an idiot." He goes, <laughs> "You can't sue somebody over an issue like this." He goes, "It's it's a functioning product." Right. He goes, it, it'd be like Ford trying to sue uh, General Motors for using round tires. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> well, they tried to so sue I said, well, what, uh, Jason what'd you do, Rick? He goes, I just ignored him. <laughs> yeah. And he never got back to me on it. He goes, because he knows he can't do anything. But then there's Jason Lawler. That's, yeah, I was just going to say, yeah. made a, a, a replacement horseshoe pickup, you know, that looked... Almost identical to a Rickenbacker, same size and everything. A little bit different. The the way he configured his his uh, magnets, they were uh, sandwiched. Well, there was two thin pieces of magnetic material that was uh, had in between sand uh, a piece of I don't know what it was, some kind of phenolic material that was sandwiched in between the two pieces of magnet material. Mm-hmm. But they worked really good, and he was selling the things for three hundred bucks. Yeah, and then all of a sudden, John Hall sends him a, a threatening letter, and, and then Jason, who I know really well, Jason calls me up and says, uh, "Did you get a letter from John Hall? He's threatening to sue me on these Porsche pickup." And I go, "No, I didn't get a letter." I said, "But he did call me, and uh, he was asking questions. What I know about you?" And I said, "I really don't know a lot about it, Jason. You sell, you make a pickup, and you sell it." You know, and so Jason and I started talking about the uh, reissue pickup that Rickenbacker made, and I said, "Well, his pickup has slug magnets; they're quarter-inch slugs. The bars that are were uh, magnetic horseshoes. I go, his are just brass, chrome-plated brass. Hmm. I go, so it's a totally different animal. Yeah, it's all for aesthetics. It doesn't right. doesn't function, doesn't work like a, a real horseshoe pickup. I go, if I were you, I go." I wouldn't worry about it. He, you know, let him try to sue you. There's nothing he can do. Yeah. Well, Jason went out and got a lawyer and went to court. And, and uh, what happened between Rickenbacker, John Hall, and uh, Lawler Pickups was they signed a license agreement where Rickenbacker licensed Jason Lawler to build the horseshoe pickups. Wow. He sells his for $600 because he has to give Hall a royalty off everyone he sells. Wow. And he's not doing too too well with them. $600 is a lot to pay for a sure. one one pickup. Yeah, really. That's just <clears throat> But he does make them. They are available. And if yeah. you want a real functioning horseshoe pickup that's built uh I can't say it's built exactly like the original 
1958 uh, Rickenbacker bass horseshoe pickup, but it's very close. Yeah. The bobbin is different, and the mounting base plate's different, but the the just the way it functions is 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 right. But Jason's uh, horseshoe magnets are much better than than what Hall made because he's actually having cast. <clears throat> having the Alnico magnets cast. Right. Now, the original Rickenbacker was, was a cobalt steel magnet, and it would hold a magnetic charge, but a lot of them would go dead mm-hmm. over a period of years. That's what happened with McCartney's uh, base. Oh, uh, really? I was working there in 76 when, when uh, McCartney, the Wings Over America, they were playing, and they were doing a sound check at the Forum for a concert the next day. And his... Uh, his bridge treble pickup all of a sudden it just quit working hmm. so he gave it to uh, somebody who drove all the way down to Santa Ana to the office and said this is Paul McCartney's bass he's doing a concert at the forum tomorrow night and it quit working what what can you do so the uh, office brought it over to the factory and uh, they couldn't recharge the uh, horseshoe magnets so what I didn't have anything to do with the, the magnets or anything, but I did put a new top nut on, on McCartney's base. And uh, we also made a new uh, pick guard because his had this big crack in it and it was missing a chip out of it. Oh. And it clean, cleaned the base up. I mean, it was all bare wood and it was dirty. It cleaned it up, uh, sanded it, and put a, one coat of sealer on it just to seal the wood off because it was raw wood. Yeah. And then instead of... Uh, the horseshoe pickup couldn't be repaired, couldn't be recharged. They put a new high gain pickup on it. Oh, really? And gave it gave it back to gave it back to the roadie or whoever worked for McCartney that brought it down. Huh. And so he was able to use it the next night at the forum. Wow, that's wild. You know, and there was a there was a letter that was included with it saying, "Look, you know, we don't have that kind of pickup anymore. Uh, your magnets are dead. Uh, this is the only thing you can do." You know, so McCartney understood. Yeah. If you, you know, we don't make that pickup. This one can't be fixed. Right. So, kaboom. You got a new high-gain uh, bridge pickup. The ones that Lawler makes are like the old lap steel horseshoe pickups, aren't they? Or Are those the same uh, They are, yeah. Kind of yeah, thing? It's a, you know, it's a real horseshoe magnet. Yeah. There's two of them. You got a north and a south pole uh, that oppose each other. And they're separate. And uh, they work. He makes a guitar one and a bass one, but the bass one is his most popular one. Those are cool pickups. I've rewound a few of those, and they they have a sound like a piano. They're just huge, and it's that 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 magnet. Are you talking about the, the Lawler one? No, the the vintage ones. I've rewound a few of those. They have really thick wire. They've got the coil wire. They do. Is, is like yep. What thirty eight? Some of them were only or? like three point six ohms. Right. If you can find yeah. an original one, they're really low ohmage. Right. Yeah. Because the wire yep. is so thick. Yep. Heavy duty, probably number thirty-eight wire. Yeah, those are great. Yep. Hey, listen, I'll let you go. I I I really appreciate you uh, uh, talking to me here on the podcast. What uh, do do you have a uh, a website or an email address you could give out if people need to contact you for uh, uh, any sure, repair work? Sure, it's my full name in small letters: Dale Fortune at Comcast dot net. Great. And yeah. I I also have another email address that I use just for guitar work. It's uh, Fortune Guitars at Yahoo dot com, and that also works for uh, my Facebook Fortune Guitars. Oh, cool! I'll have to find you on now, Facebook. Now there's a guy in Brazil who has uh, has a, a Facebook page called Fortune Custom Guitars. Okay. <laughs> I sent him I sent him a message. Uh, I said, "Hey, I like your name, Fortune." I go, that's my name, too, and I've been using it since 1972, Fortune Musical Instruments and Fortune Guitars. I said, I'm not trying to stop you from using Fortune Custom Guitars down in South America. I said, yeah. but don't don't try to bring it to America because my logo, my name is registered. I've been using it since 1972, so yeah. there you go. So for- Fortune Guitars on Facebook. Yep, yeah. Fortune Guitars. And I've right. got hundreds of pictures of guitars, mostly Rickenbackers. I, I've been specializing in Rickenbackers ever since the 70s. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Good. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to checking that out. Hey, thanks so much, man. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, you too. Thanks so much. 
Okay. Have a good evening. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye. Well, that does it for this episode of the Fret Files podcast. I want to thank you very much for listening. Thanks for participating. I need you to participate. I need you to send in your questions and comments for the show for our question and answer episodes. And uh, don't forget about your guitar horror story. Send those in. I really am looking forward to that. That's a that's always a fun episode. So get your guitar horror story in. Go to ericdaw.com, click the contact link, and uh, send in your question or comment there. Or call or text 757-774-8482. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.